The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. This is Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio. It's the second immigration victory for the Biden administration at the Supreme Court in a year. By an 8-to-1 vote, the justices rejected the challenge by Texas and Louisiana to a Biden policy that prioritizes deporting immigrants who recently crossed the border or who are considered the greatest threat to public safety. The court held that the Republican states lacked the legal standing or right to sue, something several justices, including Elena Kagan, pointed out during the oral arguments. Immigration policy is supposed to be the zenith of federal power and is supposed to be the zenith of executive power. And instead, we're creating a system where a combination of states and courts can bring immigration policy to a dead halt. And Justice Brett Kavanaugh, who wrote the majority opinion, had pushed the Texas Solicitor General on whether allowing this suit would mean that states could challenge other federal policies. Could a state challenge the president's exercise of war powers, for example, being a violation of of uh, the Constitution or the War Powers Resolution? They raised that as a uh, an issue that uh, your theory would lead to. I don't believe so, Your Honor, in part because, for example— Why not? Well, it definitely least- be cost to the state uh, from its people— Uh, going into a foreign war. So why couldn't the state then challenge under your theory here? Joining me is Leon Fresco, a partner at Holland and Knight and the former head of the Department of Justice's Office of Immigration Litigation. Leon, how big a victory was this for the Biden administration? This was absolutely a tremendous victory from the standpoint of prosecutorial discretion priorities that the Biden administration has been trying to implement since the beginning of the Biden administration, and they've been thwarted. So we're talking about 2021, 2022, and now halfway through 2023. And finally, the Biden administration is going to be able to have these prosecutorial discretion priorities so that it's no longer a decision as to the discretion of the local ICE office in your area to decide whether they are going to put you in removal proceedings or not. But instead, you'll be able to follow this particular memo and be able to say to ICE, I'm not within the prosecutorial enforcement priority, but my case should be taken off the docket and I shouldn't be deported and you should focus on these larger national security or criminal priorities that are in your memo. So explain what the Biden administration's policy is compared to what the Trump administration's policy was. So you have to start with the end of the Obama administration and then the Trump administration and now the Biden administration. So the end of the Obama administration was the first time that an actual memo was issued like this saying, look, if you are not a criminal, a recent border arrival or a national security threat, you are at the bottom of the priority list for ICE deportation, meaning ICE should be focusing all of its resources on criminals, national security threats and recent border arrivals. And hence, if you find somebody who's been here 10, 20 years, 
don't place that person into removal proceedings, don't arrest them. And if they happen to already be in removal proceedings, cancel them so that you can not take up that court slot with this kind of case, you should be taking it with a criminal case. The Trump administration came in and canceled that and said everybody is equally an enforcement priority. There isn't one person who we should be focusing on more than another because the theory was if anybody thought they were not a priority, that would mean that they would have impunity to live in the United States without fear of deportation, and they didn't want that. They wanted anybody who didn't have status in the United States to theoretically think that they could be deported at any time. Now, as a reality, were these priorities implemented still in a de facto manner? They probably were. And so you did probably still see more focus on criminal cases and on national security cases and on recent border arrivals. But nevertheless, there was a specific memo in the Trump administration saying we are not going to prioritize any specific group at the expense of another group, meaning any group was equally high of a priority. And so if you find anyone who could be deported, tried to deport them. So then the Biden administration comes in and issues a memo very similar to the Obama memo, saying, again, focus on recent border crossers, focus on national security threats, focus on criminals. And the state of Texas says, that's not legal. You've got to focus on everybody like Trump was doing. We want to enjoin this. And that's where the Supreme Court ultimately, after the federal government lost in the district court, lost in the Fifth Circuit, finally said that the state of Texas does not have standing to sue to say you're not sufficiently enforcing immigration law. So I believe that immigration advocates call President Obama the deporter-in-chief. Yes. So why would Texas and Louisiana object to a policy that's leading to, you know, a lot of arrests? Well, I think they believe that at the end of the day, if you don't have a memo that theoretically scares every single person in America, that they might be deported at any moment, that that memo is then insufficient for their purposes. And so they did not like a memo that basically said that there were going to be groups of people that were deprioritized from deportation and that there would be other groups that would be prioritized. They preferred the situation under President Trump where everyone was technically subject to deportation. And that threat, that sort of enforcement by deterrence threat, is a high priority for the immigration enforcement hawks, of which the state of Texas is and other states are, where they believe that at the end of the day, that kind of nervousness needs to be in the immigrant community. And so that's what they were suing to reimpose again. The decision was based on standing. Explain what the court found. So what the Supreme Court said is, we're not even going to get into whether the federal government is legally enforcing the immigration law, because we don't have to get there. What has to happen before any lawsuit even gets to the merits about whether the federal government is or isn't enforcing immigration law properly is that you have to have standing to sue. And what standing is, is the concept that you actually have a right to sue, meaning right now, I may not like something I watch on TV where one character defeats another character, but I can't go to a court to sue because that really doesn't affect me. And if you take that concept out to this issue of state, what the court is saying with regard to states is that even though there are many circumstances where a state can sue, in this particular circumstance where a state is trying to sue the federal government saying, we do not believe you are sufficiently enforcing the law, that 
is not a claim that in the hundreds of years of history of the United States is one that any state has ever had the ability to win. And in fact, the two or three cases that have been decided in this realm generally, where people say, hey, the federal government isn't sufficiently enforcing the law, have all been denied for lack of standing, meaning it's very hard for anybody to see the federal government saying, I think that your enforcement is too lax. I think the court should get involved in making the enforcement stronger. And the basic underlying logical common sense reason is what is a court supposed to do if they agree and if the plaintiff wins? Are they supposed to start saying, hey, there's Steve on 24th Johnson Street. Go arrest him. And if you don't, we're going to hold you in contempt of court. Here's Bobby on 31 Honey Lane. We're going to arrest you if you don't go arrest Bobby. It's impossible. Courts are not law enforcement agencies. And how can this possibly be enforced by the court? And hence, the court said this is the traditional kind of case where there's no standing. So there was a lot of talk during the oral arguments about the fact that the federal government doesn't have the capacity to arrest every illegal immigrant in this country. Was that any part at all of the decision? Absolutely. They tried to say in the decision that you can't read this decision as saying that this is going to give carte blanche to the federal government to cease to enforce laws, that you can't read this decision as doing that. Although Alito in his defense says that's exactly what this decision says. And even though they say it's not what it says, in the end, this is going to get extended, this doctrine. What Justice Kavanaugh, who wrote the majority decision, said is, no, if you abdicate your enforcement, maybe come back and let's see, and we can have a decision on whether you're standing. But here, there is no dispute that there is enforcement going on, and the issue is just whether it's enough enforcement. And because they say the last 30 years, they cite, of presidential administrations of both parties have said there's too many people who are here without status and too few enforcement resources, so we can't enforce them for everybody, so we might as well make memos that talk about who's a priority and who isn't, that that is permissible because there is enforcement going on, as opposed to some future hypothetical scenario where if there was some sort of jubilee year where the government said, we're not going to enforce laws on anybody for any reason, don't do whatever you want, that that might be able to be challenged in that future hypothetical case. So now, could this influence other immigration cases that may reach the Supreme Court, for example, DACA? Well, so that's the interesting question that's being asked. What happens to DACA? And so it depends how you look at it. The cases that were cited in this Supreme Court case of the United States versus Texas were the exact same cases that were cited by the federal government with regard to DACA, meaning that they believe on the federal government end that the two parts of DACA, we're not going to deport you part, but also that we're going to give you a work permit part, are both flip sides of the same coin of prosecutorial discretion, meaning that once the government decides that they're not going to deport you because you're such a low priority, like one of these DACA children, then what are you supposed to do when the child turns 16? Are you supposed to just let them be homeless and be able to earn a living? Or are you supposed to let them work so that the work is not separated from the decision to refrain from deportation? Whereas Justice Kavanaugh appeared to say in his decision, 
Well, we'll get back to DACA when we get to it. He didn't talk about DACA, but he said, if we're talking about not just enforcement, but enforcement plus benefits, that's not what we're talking about in this case. So he leaves the door open for a DACA challenge and says enforcement plus benefits may be different than just enforcement. And so it's going to come down to that question. What does the government, what does the Supreme Court think about the government's argument that giving someone you're not deporting the ability to legally work, is that part of the same prosecutorial discretion decision that's not reviewable? Or is that a new thing that thus makes it reviewable? So this theory that the justice has decided this case on could be used if states challenge under enforcement of drug laws or gun laws, et cetera, right? Correct. Anytime a state is challenging in the future anything related to a lack of environmental enforcement, lack of drug enforcement, lack of gun enforcement, whatever the topic is, it's going to be a very, very hard challenge for a state to sue because, again, the courts are saying the coercive power of the federal government is not being used against anyone. No one is directly suffering as a result of this, and hence there's no standing. If you could actually show a human being who was being coerced by the government in some way, fine, there would be standing. But here, because there isn't anything, there is no standing. And then, of course, even if you win, what do you win? How do you get a court to become an enforcement body? That's where the courts say, we can't do that. We're Article 3. Enforcement happens with Article 2. That's the executive. And you can't turn courts into enforcement agencies. That's really the big mental block here that the justice has had, is what was the court supposed to do even if Texas won? And nobody had a good answer for that. It's the second immigration victory for the administration at the Supreme Court in a year. Does that signal a change in the court, or is it just based on the facts and law of each of these cases? Well, I do think you're seeing some very interesting trends. So, for instance, there were three immigration cases decided in the last seven days. And there was one case that, yes, was decided against the foreign nationals related to this issue of whether obstruction of justice was requiring an actual investigation that was live to be taking place in order to deport the person. And even though they ruled that person could be deported, the point was you start to see Justice Gorsuch really taking a hard line on deporting people. I find that to be a very interesting trend. He's basically saying, look, the government has to have very clear guidance before they can deport people. And that's a very interesting thing. He's done that in a couple of cases, last term and now this case. So that's one interesting trend. And then the second interesting trend you're seeing is Roberts and Kavanaugh on the issue of challenges to the government's authority to make immigration memos to have a more expansive view of the federal government's ability to operate in this state, the administrative state's ability to operate in this state. And so that I also find very interesting. And even Justice Coney Barrett on this same front, even though she wasn't on the majority opinion, she filed a different concurring opinion on a different part of standing. I do think that both in the Remain in Mexico case and in this prosecutorial discretion case, that block of justices, Kavanaugh, Coney Barrett, and Roberts, seem to be saying, look, the states are going too far when they want to have say in the way immigration law is being enforced. They just have to stop doing that. 
And now we have multiple decisions saying that. Remain in Mexico and now the prosecutorial discretion case. And so I think now we're returning sort of back to the future, back to the 1880s original jurisprudence here, which is that, look, when the federal government is acting in a way that's consistent with the congressional grant of authority to the federal government, there's not really anything for the courts to do here. And that's what we're seeing in the last couple of years. Coming up, I'll continue this conversation with Leon Fresco, and we'll talk about two other immigration decisions the court handed down last week. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. Leon, let's turn now to two other Supreme Court decisions from last week in criminal cases involving immigration. Tell us about those. The two criminal cases actually ended up being decided against the foreign nationals, but neither of those cases were very sympathetic cases to the foreign nationals. So they're not, in terms of their reach, not going to be very broad. So the first case was one about inducing people to either come to the United States illegally or stay in the United States illegally. And so that's been illegal for about 100 years. And there's been several iterations of the statute, the most recent one being in the 50s, about whether you could make it illegal to induce people to either stay in the United States or to come to the United States. And so there was this creative theory that because the word was called induce, that induce is speech, and that you would be violating the First Amendment to criminalize people for essentially saying, Grandma, please don't leave the United States. I know you're here unlawfully. Now, that's not what was happening in this case. In this case, there was an actual criminal, a person who committed $2 million worth of fraud, inducing people to engage in a fake adoption scheme in order to get citizenship, which none of that works. And so, but that person was saying, because this statute permits the criminalization of someone telling their grandmother, grandma, please stay, don't go home, even though you're in illegal status, that that meant that the whole statute needed to be struck down under the First Amendment ground, which, by the way, the plaintiff was ever prosecuted. And what the court found was that that kind of conduct, grandma, please stay, was not actually written into the statute, and that the conduct of inducement actually had to be the intentional encouragement and facilitation of an illegal act, meaning, hey, here is how you get a fake ID. Here is how you get fake paperwork. Here is how you cross the border illegally. Go over there. Go do, you know, that kind of thing. It couldn't just be, Grandma, please stay in America. I will miss you, because that's not actually facilitating in any way an illegal act. So the court limited the way it's going to be read to say you actually have to have conduct talking about facilitating the illegal act. The speech had to involve that, and if it didn't, you couldn't criminalize it. So that was that first case. And then in the second case, there was a dispute about people who are being deported for committing obstruction of justice. The question was whether you could be deported for committing obstruction of justice 
if there wasn't a pending investigation. And so there were two kinds of cases. One, where the person was trying to stop people from even speaking to the cops on a domestic violence case. And by doing that, that would mean that an investigation would never be launched. So it was pre-investigation type obstruction. And in the second one, it was after the fact, meaning that everything ended, and then it charged the person for being an accessory to a crime after the fact. So one was pre-investigation obstruction and one was post-investigation obstruction. And so the question was, could you be deported under the obstruction of justice ground of deportation if there wasn't a pending investigation? And here, six justices, all the conservative justices, said, yes, you could be deported in this situation because in the end, the best time to obstruct justice is before an investigation. That's when you would benefit most. So, of course, Congress meant all aspects of obstruction of justice. You didn't need an active pending investigation in order to be deported for obstruction of justice. So in those two cases, they ruled against the immigrants in the cases. Neither of those are very large cases of applicability. And can you reconcile the reasoning in those two criminal cases with the reasoning in the main case involving Texas and Louisiana? In both of those cases, they're basically trying to say that the common sense version of the rule remains in place. We're not going to start looking for creative ways to invalidate congressional statutes. So in a sense, it's consistent with the same concept in the larger prosecutorial discretion case, which is, again, Congress is allowing the federal government to have the say in how it's doing this, and whether the federal government says, this is how we're going to enforce the law with regard to prosecutorial discretion, this is how we're going to enforce it with regard to obstruction of justice, this is how we're going to enforce it with regard to inducement of someone staying here illegally or coming here illegally, the government's being given deference widely in all of these aspects. Sometimes the deference helps foreign nationals, sometimes it hurts foreign nationals. But the court seems to be giving deference every single time to the federal government's enforcement priorities here. I always appreciate your insights, Leon. Thanks so much. That's Leon Fresco, a partner at Holland and Knight. And that's it for this edition of the Bloomberg Law Show. Remember, you can always get the latest legal news on our Bloomberg Law podcast. You can find them on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and at www.bloomberg.com slash podcast slash law. And remember to tune into the Bloomberg Law Show every weeknight at 10 p.m. Wall Street time. I'm June Grosso, and you're listening to Bloomberg. What could you do if your data was working for you? and not against you. With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher level analysis, and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move. Our data is made for more, so you can show the world what you're made of. Visit Bloomberg.com enterprise data to learn more.